Amen. In our text, we find Jesus at another house of a Pharisee, of a religious leader. We've seen this often because Jesus never turns down an invitation. Chuck Smith used to say, Jesus never turns down an invitation to eat, and I won't either. It, he was invited over to someone's house. He went over to their house. Now, in their day, they would have the scholars, the rabbis, the religious leaders sit around a table and discuss religious things, and they would invite in the, the crowds to come into their house, and they would stand along the walls, and they would watch other people eat. Hopefully, they had eaten before they got there, weren't licking their chops the whole time, thinking, I want that guy's leftovers. Is he finished with that? Maybe I can grab that when, when he gets up. But they would listen to the conversations of the rabbis. And this is why when Jesus is invited over to Simon's house, and we studied that earlier, that a, a woman who is a prostitute comes in. A prostitute would normally not walk into a Pharisee's house, but she knew that they were there with Jesus talking. And so she came in as part of that crowd to listen. And she suddenly realized all of her shame and guilt could be removed by the one who was there. And she fell at his feet and she wept and she wiped her tears on his feet with her hair. And Jesus forgave her of her sins. That's why that could happen. That's similar to the setting that we have here today. He's invited over to this religious ruler's house and someone with a paralysis comes in and Jesus heals him. Um, this is very similar to something we covered last month in chapter 13, where Jesus heals a woman in a synagogue that's bent over. And then there's a confrontation about the Sabbath. I don't want to go into great detail about that today because we just did it. If you have questions about the Sabbath, if you've got someone in your life telling you that you've got to go to church on Saturday in order to keep the Sabbath, first of all, you can ask them, where does it say that in the Bible? Where do the epistles tell us to meet on Saturday or we're not doing God's will? Where, where, where does in the book of Acts does the early church meet on Saturday? Because they don't. So they, they, they make the commandments of men and then they teach them as if they are the commandments of God. They make their own commandments and then say, if you aren't going to church on Saturday, you're, you're not keeping the Sabbath. When in reality, Jesus is our Sabbath. Uh, if you want more on that study, I think it's, it's literally called, um, should Christians go to church on Saturday? I think that's or the Sabbath. Should Christians go to church on Saturday? I think it's literally what it's called. So you can look that up. You could go online to do that. You could go to our app. You could go to the YouTube page. If you go to our YouTube page and you go to the search for our page, and you type in Sabbath, you're going to get a couple of hot topics on the Sabbath, which are just shorter teachings. And then you're going to get full length teachings. And I go into all of the scriptures. Colossians tells us, don't let anyone judge you according to Sabbaths. So even in their day, there were people trying to lay trips on people to keep the law. The law has changed. We are no longer under the law. I do keep the Ten Commandments because Jesus is my Sabbath. He, he fulfilled all of the Sabbath requirements and I find my rest in him who said, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, come unto me and you will find rest. So that's a quick rundown of just some information. Um, you can get a lot more of that in our full length studies on whether or not you should go to church on Saturday or Sunday, which we have quite a few of them at this point. So let's just get into this. When, well, when we get to the second part where Jesus tells a parable, we're gonna talk about humility. So we just want to kind of bask in that for a little while while we're going through this first section. We want to talk about pride. The culture we live in is a very, is a culture that sees pride as a virtue and sees humility as debilitating. When the Bible teaches us that humility is a virtue and pride is a deceptive sin. So we are, we, there, there's a culture clash. 
The culture between the biblical culture, God's culture, and the, the culture that we live in in the world today where humility is not even taught as a virtue. But Jesus, we're going to get from the lips of our Savior something about humility. And we're going to talk about that today. Uh, so let's start in verse 1. We'll first of all look at Jesus at this ruler's house. All these things happen at his house, but we'll see first of all him healing this man with dropsy, which again is a form of paralysis. Okay, verse uh, 1 of chapter 14. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath. Jesus never turned down an invitation. Now, I don't think it was about eating. I think he was willing to interact with anyone. And any one of you here, at whatever level of your life you're in, you can say to Jesus, I want you in my life. I want to live for you. I want you in my life. Would you come in? Would you move? Would you? Jesus responds to invitations. He's waiting for it. He won't force his way in. And if you say, I don't want you in my life, Jesus will be, okay, I won't come into your life. And, and some people will say, well, asking Jesus into your life is unbiblical, which cracks me up. There's a big move out there now for people to say such things. So I, I, I think they just don't want to give altar calls at their sermons. They're afraid they're not going to have anybody raise their hand or something. Because John 1.12 says, as many as receive him, he gives the right to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. Don't tell me it's not biblical to receive Jesus because the Bible tells me it is. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. I think people are missing out that you don't give them a chance to invite Jesus into their lives. And hey, we can invite him deeper as well, right? We can, we can go, you know what? I'm kind of living for Jesus and living for myself and I want to live for him wholeheartedly. So he's invited by this, this religious ruler and it's on the Sabbath. This is near the end of his ministry. There's been a lot of Sabbath clashes because the Sabbath was a big deal to them. And Jesus broke all of their rules. All the rules they had about the Sabbath, he broke. But what the Bible said about the Sabbath, he kept. That's a, that's a clue. And so then it says, and they watched him closely and behold, there was a certain man before them who had dropsy. So the certain man with a type of paralysis was all of a sudden there. This is because he wouldn't normally be in, the, in this Pharisee's, in this ruler's house, but he's there to watch what's happening. But he's obviously heard that Jesus heals. This is the end of the three-year ministry of Jesus. And so he comes to be healed. And so it's like, this is unexpected. It's like when this guy with dropsy came in, would have had a hard time walking for sure, may have, may have needed assistance getting in, would have made a commotion. And this is why he says, behold, a man with dropsy came in. And I'm sure everybody stopped and looked over at the guy. And maybe even the religious ruler went, oh no, it's Sunday. This guy, he heals people on Sunday. And so then it says that uh, verse two, and behold, a certain man uh, before them had dropsy and Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? The answer to that is if, if a doctor was to work, if it was an emergency, he could work. That was there. That's how they had taken the idea for a doctor not to work. A doctor would want to honor the Sabbath as well. And so if someone could wait until Sunday to, then they would wait. But compassion was always important. And if someone needed care, they could care for them. They could care. If their donkey fell into a ditch on the Sabbath, they didn't have to leave the donkey in there. Even though it was technically work, the Old Testament had said, you can get the donkey out of there because it's not compassionate to leave the donkey there. How much more compassion are we supposed to have on people than donkeys? I realize there are people who say you're supposed to have more compassion on donkeys, but it's just not true. We're supposed to have more compassion on people. And so... And, and, and this isn't Jesus's job. It's not work for him to heal someone. But he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? 
but they kept silent. They've already had this conversation many times. And he took him and he healed him and he let him go. And he answered and said, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding this thing. In the last chapter, he said to them, this woman has been bound by Satan for 18 years. Think of it, 18 years. And you will take your donkey out of a ditch, but you won't allow her to be healed. You're upset that she's healed. What a powerful thing. And how in Christianity, the greatest thing that we have is compassion, that, that we would be compassionate. And this is part of our study next week. But do you know that you get, when you do something truly altruistic, altruistic is when you do something that doesn't, has no value to you at all. It's you're not doing it for you at all. You just see someone in need and you decide to help them. Maybe it's not a, a child who's not your child, something that has happened and you reach out and you help them. Do you know that God has created us so that there is a dopamine and a serotonin hit in our brain. They've done a recent study on true altruism and that there's, that we get the feel good stuff from helping people. God's created it that way. You get none of that from greed. You get none of that from just hoarding. You get none of those things. So we, we deprive our brains from the things that they need, that it needs to be able to feel, uh, to have, have be in a good mood and to feel satisfied and fulfilled when we are selfish and introspective. A little look ahead to next week. We'll talk about that then. Um, so Jesus helps this man out and then he looks around and he tells this parable. This parable is where I want to land in our study today. I'm going to read through our entire text. I'm going to get to verse 11 and then I'm going to talk about five things the Bible tells us about humility. So when we get to verse 11, don't get excited that the study's done yet. It's not. We still have a little bit to go after that. So it says in verse 7, so he told the parable to those who were invited or a parable to those who were invited. He noted how they chose the best places. So in their day, today we have the head of the table. In their day, they had the host of the feast and then sitting next to the host, right and left, were the two most important positions. And in their culture, the left side was the most important that's where Judas was, by the way, in the Last Supper. And on the right side was John. So John, who wrote the book of Revelation, and Judas had the places of honor in the Last Supper. And then it came all the way around. And if you were the furthest away from the host, that was the least seat. So they wanted pecking order. And when it came time to choose the table, the, the chairs, they would run up and try to grab the one that gave them the best honor. Jesus watched this happen. It happened at this meal. Came time for the meal. They all raced and did some jockeying and fought in and elbows and who knows, sliding people off to get in. And so Jesus says, um, when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, verse 8, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast. Now he gives them a little bit of an out by saying it's a wedding feast because they're at a, a normal dinner where they're going to discuss theological things and and not a wedding. So he gives him a little bit of an out. But then he says this, do not sit down in the best place. And I got to think that the person that, that won the race and was sitting to the left of the host, probably it took him a couple minutes to realize he's talking about me. <laughs> Jesus is confronting them directly. 
Do you know how when someone's saying something and you all of a sudden realize it impacts you in a negative way and your mind just kind of gets a little bit dizzy and just kind of the whole world, like you start tunnel vision and start like, you have a physical response. I imagine these guys were like, what? he's confronting me here. He says, do not sit down in the best place, lest more honorable than you be invited by him. And he, in, and he who invited you uh, and him come to you and say, give place to this man. And then he began with shame to take the lowest place. So he's saying, the host is going to say, this isn't your seat. And the only seat that's left because everybody's jockeyed for position is the last seat. So you've got to get up with shame and go down to the last place. And he says, but when you are invited, and this is, this is what we do when we humble ourselves. What you do when you're invited, go and sit down in the lowest place. Don't assume the highest place. The, the words, don't you know who I am, should never come out of the mouth of a Christian. And certainly, if I can preach to my colleagues for a moment, certainly never a pastor. Those words should never... There, there's a, there was a pastor who seriously said, well, I'm a pretty big deal. Not because of the movie with Will Ferrell, but because he really thought that it was appropriate for him to say, well, don't you know I'm a pretty big deal? Those words should never come out of our mouths. We should humble ourselves. There is false humility. False humility is when you're pretty good at something. Think about what you're good at. It's interesting when you start talking to people, you find out people are good at all kinds of things you never thought. There are people that you knew for years that you didn't know could paint or draw or, you know, just what they're good at. Think about what you're good at. If you're, you're a good basketball player and someone goes on, they're a pretty good basketball player, but they're nowhere near as good as you are. And someone says to you, well, they're pretty good, uh, and, and, uh, but you're better. And you go, oh, no, no, I'm really not a good ba uh, basketball player. That's false humility. That might make you feel good, but that's not what humility is. Humility is taking the last seat. Humility is not demanding something that you could go and demand, but you don't demand it. Humility is when you get up from the table and you put a towel around your waist and you begin to wash people's feet. Don't do that today for real. It's an analogy. You'll freak the people out if you do that. I'm, I'm saying that's what humility is. Jesus said to his disciples, they argued over who was going to be the greatest. And I love that he never rebuked them for that because all of us want our lives to count. We want our lives to matter. We want people to be, to be in, uh, affected by our lives in a positive way. And I want your life to count. But the greatest call for a Christian is to take the role of a servant. So Jesus said, you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then learn to be a servant for everyone. The greatest role in the world is you climb the ladder and you become a CEO of a big company and it's a lot of work if you become the CEO of Amazon or Google or, or Tesla or whatever it is. It's a lot of work to get there. There's a lot you do. Every one of us, and there's only one on the top of that mountain, by the way, every one of us can take the, the highest role in Christianity and become a servant. This is humility. That's what humility is. I just wanted to make sure we understood it and didn't think that false humility, you know, somehow saying, well, I'm really not good at playing the guitar or, or whatever is, is what humility is. It's taking the last seat. It's putting other people's interest above your own. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. So he says, um, go down and take the last seat. 
And verse 10, but when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when he who invites you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For, and, and here's Jesus's words, and this is gonna be my first point in, in five things the Bible teaches us about humility. Uh, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. If you exalt yourself, you're gonna be humbled. And if you humble yourself, this is God's word. This is the words from our Savior. If you take the last seat, if you become a servant to people around you, he is going, you are going to be exalted. Now let's talk about these five things that the Bible says about humility. And I wanted to start with a quote and I want to end with a quote. So the quote that I want to start with is John the Baptist. John said this in John 30, excuse me, John 3, verse 30. John said, he must increase, speaking of Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. Here, here's a man used by God in incredible ways. Jesus said, John was the greatest of all the prophets. Moses was a prophet. John the Baptist was greater according to Jesus. He, he, all of Jerusalem and Judea came out to see him. And, and John said, he must increase and I must decrease. And it happened. After he baptized Jesus, the Bible says Jesus began to baptize in the wilderness as well. And more people came to Jesus to be baptized than to John. And even though Jesus himself didn't baptize, but his disciples did. And I think that's for an obvious reason. Because if somebody got baptized by Jesus, can you imagine how prideful they'd be? Every once in a while, I'll meet somebody, you know, that's been in Calvary Chapel a long time, and they'll tell me, well, Chuck Smith baptized me. Well, good. I'm glad. I was baptized by a, by a Methodist preacher who didn't believe that someone should be baptized other than infants. That's who I was baptized by. And I think my baptism stuck. He, we actually argued with us about it. And finally, and finally, I just said, the Bible says, believe and be baptized. And he said, okay, I'll baptize you. And we went over to a Baptist church that had a dunker and he dunked us. And uh, I give him a lot of props for that, by the way, because he saw what the Bible said. He saw what we were saying and he responded to it. Um, so the, uh, he must increase and I must decrease. And that should always be the case. It should always be about glorifying Jesus. It should always be about lifting him up. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. In the context, he's talking about the cross. I know that. Nevertheless, when we lift Jesus up, people are drawn to him because Jesus is far more compelling than you, than me. I'm not just talking about you particularly. Jesus is far more compelling than any of us. And when we lift him up and people can see Christ in our lives, then there's something that they're drawn to because all people are drawn to Jesus. So the first thing that I have, and I want to go through these quickly, the first thing that I have is self-exaltation does, does the opposite. Self-exaltation does the opposite. This is from our text, and this is what Jesus said. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So that if you are prideful, and you think, I'm going to get my rightful place in this world, and you strive to climb the ladder to the top, then you will be humbled. This is even more truthful. It's certainly truthful for non-believers as well, but it's even more truthful for Christians because we're called to live what Jesus said. And that if we are pride, when, when you are prideful, and pride is a sin, not a virtue, pride is a sin. And, and the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that sin is deceptive. So that 
you can justify it because it's deceptive. It says that there are people who are taken in by the deceptiveness of sin. And so some, some might even be thinking today as you're listening, well, I'm not prideful. When you may be just justifying your sin. I have heard every sin po out there possible justified by Christians who want that sin in their lives. When you are humble, Jesus said you will be exalted. And I think, first of all, there's something that happens naturally here. I think we have a tendency to exalt ourselves too high and, and that there's a, a, an, a, there's a fall that's going to happen because we like to put ourselves so high, there's a fall that takes place. I, I think that's a natural thing. And when we humble ourselves, I think it's natural that we will go to the, to, we'll rise to the spot that God has for us. And so there's an exaltation. But listen to this one in James, James 4.10. Here James says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. So this is, is God lifting you up. And we know that God is against the prideful. One of the seven things that God hates is a haughty look. And so God fights against the prideful. Now, let's just talk for a moment before we continue on here to the second and, and about our world we're living in. We're living in a rapidly changing world that is becoming more narcissistic. It is my belief. I, ha I certainly have no study to back this up, but it's my belief that it is the extreme narcissism and fame seeking of our day that, it, that causes suicide young, among young people to be on the rise. It's one of the reasons that it's so on the rise. Because, well, in the, there was a study done in 2010 that compared the amount of people who are narcissistic and fame-seeking to, to the 1980s. And I'll tell you, the 80s were better than today, all right? As a, as a man who was in his 20s in the 80s. They were at least better for me. Uh, so that in, in, in Greek mythology... There's a demigod called Narciss. Narciss was really good looking. And he wandered into a cave. And there's a pool of water there. And he looked down in the cave and he said, hey. He began to stare at himself. And he couldn't take his eyes away from himself until he died. He just stayed there staring at himself until he died. And that's where we get narcissism from. We're so introspective. Do you know, and I want to get the statistic right, so I think last night I said it wrong, but I'll tell you what I said last night and tonight. I should have written it down. But uh, there are 10,000 selfies posted worldwide. I, last night I said every 10 seconds, it might be every 10 minutes. I forgot to go back and look. Either way, it's a lot. It, let's just call it 10 minutes. There's 10,000 selfies posted worldwide every 10 minutes. I think it's possibly 10 seconds. But that'll tell you the world we live in. There's... A, there's a whole category of selfies that have led to death. It's tragic. You, you, it comes up on the little feed on the side. People who died taking selfies. And they show the pictures of these people standing on the precipice of a tall building. They fell to their death and they got their phone and found out they were taking a selfie when they died. That's like narcissists. You, you want, what do you want? You want a, something's going to go viral. You want, so you get so close to the edge of something that you, you get past the point trying to take that picture. There's also a whole category called selfies gone wrong. And this is when someone gets so focused on themselves, they forget to see what's in the background and then they post it and it leads to their divorce or it leads to their firing. <laughs> or people that are so narcissistic 
that they'll call in sick to work and then post a selfie of them bragging that they're on the beach and their boss is like, you're fired. <laughs> we, uh, we certainly live in a day, and I think that's 2010. I think it's even worse today. And I do believe, you may have seen the, the, the um, studies that Facebook did about the way that Instagram is affecting young girls and the way they didn't really respond or do anything. I think the day will be coming when we don't do social media the way that we do it. I, I think it's bad for the soul of men. I'm just talking about mankind. I think to, to be so wrapped up in making a post and how many likes did I get and finding self-worth in that, which is, it's, it's, hard for, it's hard for a 50-year-old man to not do it. I know plenty of 50-year-old men that are wrapped up in it. It's hard for 50, imagine you're a 13-year-old girl how hard it is to not to try to find some self-worth from that and to have your self-worth completely dashed because you're trying to find it in the wrong place. I'm off my soapbox now and I'm back into the text. Verse two, uh, the second thing uh, the Bible tells us about the lessons we learn in the Bible from humility is that humility is required from you. The first one is that if you try to exalt yourself as a believer, the opposite is going to happen. The second one is, is that God requires humility from each of us. And this comes from Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Three things, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Number one, that you love, uh, that you do justly, you treat people right. God requires that of us. If today you're treating people wrong, I'm not talking about that today, but if you are, then let that sink in. God requires you to treat people right. Number two, that you would love mercy. This means you're not a judgmental jerk. That brought some silence. <laughs> he said jerk from the pulpit. That, that means that you are merciful towards people who are struggling because you need mercy. And God said the mercy you give is the mercy you receive. And that we're to walk humbly with our God. This is required that I take the last seat, that I take the back of the row, the first will be last and the last will be first. Everything's inverted in the kingdom of God. In the world, they fight to get to the top. In the world, we're supposed to fight to get to the bottom. We're supposed to take that last seat. That's what real humility is. We're supposed to, to serve. That's what real humility is. And it is required of us. I also like this, thinking of it being required. In, in Psalms 25, 9, the humble, he guides in justice. So if you're a humble person, he'll guide you in justice. And the humble, he teaches his ways. Humility is also required to learn about God. And if I could put pictures up now, I would have somebody on their face before God. That's the kind of humility you need to be able to see God. And so I, I have conversations with agnostics from time to time. And I always try to tell them to be humble. Because a lot of times there's an arrogance. They're like, I'm an agnostic. I want to find out what the truth is. I want to know whether or not God's there. I'm not saying your God isn't there. I just don't know if he's there. They'll say things like that. But then they'll be very, very arrogant in their statement. Why did God kill the Canaanites? They're very arrogant about it. And I'll, I'll say, you know, there's answers to that. If you would humbly approach God, you could then you could evaluate the answers and see whether or not they're sufficient. But, it, but you got to be humble first. You can't approach God by arrogance. God's not going to show himself to you. 
you're cutting God out of the picture by being arrogant. Satan was the first one to have pride. You are never more like the devil than when you are prideful. And so when you are prideful and say, God needs to show me why he did that. Why don't you ask him? Why don't you be like the guy that says, I don't know whether you're there or not, God, but I want to find out. And I have these questions and I have these doubts. Hey, if your doubts end up being and you're humble and those doubts end up being uh, not answered to your sufficiency and you're an atheist, well, that's your choice. But you got to know you will never find God if you're prideful. You are cutting yourself out of the picture of really being able to find him. And I'll kind of give that direction to anyone who's an atheist or anyone who's an agnostic or anyone who may be prideful. You know, we, we tell God, you're not running the world right. And God's like, you're not running your life right. And that's all of us. Which one of us has our life together? Which one of us doesn't have problems and struggles, right? Don't raise your hand if you think you're that person because you're not. We can't even run our lives and we're telling God how to run the universe. That ought to just give us a little bit of humility. God, I'm going to read this again, the second part of Psalms 25, 9, and the humble, he teaches his ways. So God has told you how you can receive from him. That's the way you do it. You, you, you humble, God will reach you. Prideful, he won't. The third thing the Bible, or the third lesson the Bible teaches us about humility is that God is on the side of the humble. He actually backs you when you're humble. Uh, this comes from James 4, 6, but he gives more grace, it says. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Other versions say God is against the prideful and on the side of the humble. Whatever I, whatever I want, I can guarantee you I don't want God against me. You should not want God against you. And when we see the destruction the, the, uh, of Satan, because of his pride, when we see the deception that we can get into, we definitely do not want God against us. If anyone needs to be on your side, it's God. The fourth thing the Bible teaches, the fourth lesson that the Bible teaches us about humility is that pride comes before destruction. We've all heard pride comes before the fall. And that's because we, two things, we elevate ourselves too high and we tumble or we elevate ourselves too high and God knocks us off. Um, here, this is a little different take on it. Proverbs 18, 12, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty and before honor is humility. So when there's destruction, we know that there was pride that came before it. When there's honor, we know that there is humility that came before it. I did a little bit of reading this week on Colin Powell for obvious reasons. He passed away. And I saw people again and again talking about his humility, about the heights that he achieved, the, the records that he had broken, how, how God had used him. And he was such a humble man. And everyone points that out. God's on the side of someone who is humble. And it's very, very powerful. Uh, Pride comes before a fall. Years ago, we had just started the church and the church was just beginning to take off. And I was very early on in pastoring. And my brother-in-law, Pete, had climbed very high in the Navy already. I'm pretty sure he eventually became an admiral or right under an admiral, whatever it was. I mean, very high in the Navy. And um, uh, he was out at Davis-Mothin and he showed up at church on a Thursday night. 
And our Thursday nights at that point were doing really good. It was like standing room only. And I, I came out and Pete was there. He said, hey, Robert. I said, Pete, what are you doing here? We talked a little bit and I looked around the room and I thought, man, this is awesome. He's here and look at this room. It's packed with people and, 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 my, and Pete's here. And the worship got done and everybody started clapping and I got up on the stage to walk over and I hit a chord and bam, I went down. <laughs> everybody was clapping. I went down so hard. It wasn't like a stumble, a trip. And it was a whack. And it was so hard that people went like this. <gasps> they literally stopped clapping and gasped. And I stood back up really quick because you're embarrassed, right? And stare at the cord. In a hundred years, I would never say, God, let me fall down on stage one time. A hundred years. It just so happens when I'm feeling prideful about what God's doing, that God knocks me down. I don't think that just so happened. God, God's pretty good at humbling us. And we survive, right? It's no fun. Imagine my brother-in-law, Pete. <laughs> just like, well, there it is. So the fifth thing the Bible tells us about um, that the, the, the lesson we get from the Bible about pride is let nothing be done through selfish ambition or put other people's interest above your own. This is another step on what real pride is. Pride is taking the lowest seat. Pride is putting a towel around your waist and becoming the servant. Excuse me, humility. You guys are all like, I know we know what you mean. Didn't even need to correct yourself, Robert. We know what you mean. So pride is taking the lowest seat. Pride is uh, <laughs> humility is taking the lowest seat. And and humility is being a servant and humility is putting other people's interest above your own. So this is in Philippians, which we'll cover not before before too long on our Wednesday night study. Let nothing Philippians 2, 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Let nothing, nothing be done. That. This is a, a verse that I think should be read at every pastor's conference that ever goes on. Maybe we just should start it that way. Just a little bit of a check for all us pastors. Are you doing something for selfish ambition and conceit? Do nothing out of it. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. One of my favorite teachers and, and has been really my whole Christian life is Charles Swindoll. I love him for several reasons. But I, and I tried to be him for a while too. I don't make a good Charles Swindoll, not at all. Um, but he told the story of taking his son on a rafting trip. And it was, they had several vans and they had several guides and they had several, you know, um, rafts for each guide. And so when he got there, he wanted this to be the best possible trip he could have for his son. His son was in his teens. And so he chose the best of all the vans. He got in there first, made sure they got in. He, he sized up the guides. He made sure that he was with what he thought was the best guide. And then out of the rafts that guide had, he chose the best raft and made sure him and his son got in the best raft. And when the trip was done, he got back home. And he said, as he sat down in his study and realized that Philippians 2, 3 was the passage he was teaching on that week. And, and here's the words of Charles Wendell. And that was one of the reasons I love him so much. He said, I've never been more ashamed of myself in all my life. He's, I, was lit, I literally put my own interest above their interest on every level. I, I should have picked the worst van, picked the worst seat on the van and picked the worst guide and the worst raft to let somebody else have a better experience. That's humility. Letting, putting other people's interest above our own. 
It's, we don't hear this today. We don't hear this in churches today. We don't hear that we're supposed to live this way today. We, we've moved into our world where pride is a virtue and humility is, is not. When, when humility is the virtue, it is the forgotten virtue of today. That Jesus says, I'll stand behind it and I'll lift you up. I want to give you a quote now. This is the ending quote. The first quote was by Johnny B. I must decrease, he must increase. Um, you'll get who this is before it's all done, I'm sure. For he said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high God, Satan. And people say, well, how could Satan think he was going to be like the most high God? I know people who think they're like the most high God, much less Satan. And remember, it's deceptive. Pride is deceptive. And so somehow you think you are on the same level as God, and that amazes me. If there's anything you should know, it's you are not God. I am not God. And, and, and walking humbly before God allows us to be able to gain those real principles that are very powerful. It's interesting to me that Satan said, I will be like the Most High God. What did he say to Eve when he offered her the fruit? If you eat it, you will be like God. That's the lie that's taking place even in these last days that we are living in. Man is being lied to that they can be like God. This is the doctrines of demons that are being taught in the last days. And men and women are eating it up. Yeah, I always knew I was God. Yeah, I always knew I was. Humbling ourselves before God. What a great picture we have here. And may God help us to do it. May this not just be another message that we're in that doesn't bring something life-changing, but may we grasp what comes from the lips of our Savior. If you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled, but if you humble yourself, you will be exalted and live that by taking that last place, putting aside false humility and living for Christ. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the richness that is found in the pages of Scripture, especially when it comes to this principle of humility. Thank you that it is consistent throughout the Word of God from the time that, that, that we see it in the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament and help us to humble ourselves before you. Lord, we don't want to be humbled by you, so we ask that you would help us to humble ourselves so there's no place that we can fall. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.